Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. weekend here at Overflow Church. Uh, over the weekend, we had three fine art shows. We opened up our doors to the community. And it was a total, y'all, of nine hours of glory of middle schoolers and high schoolers. Is it, cra- it was better than Lord of the Rings, y'all. It was like, it was just incredible to watch what God is doing. We want you just to keep our middle schoolers and high schoolers in prayer because right after the other side of Easter, they head to districts to share a whole lot of hope of a whole lot of glory. So can we just give it up for our fine art students and teachers? Yeah, so good. And this morning, we are in our final week of our Peacemaker series. And this is where I want us to start and focus this morning. It's this, that first things are important. The first thing that is done is important. And when we look at the beginning of our story, the very first thing God did when he created humanity, it wasn't to command us. The first thing wasn't a command. In fact, the Bible says the very first thing God did was he blessed us. Now, I love this word because in the Hebrew, what it means is this. It means that God chose to come from a high place down to a low one. And that from that place he came and that he lifted us by the head. He looked us in the eyes. He delighted in us and he furnished us with everything we would ever need. Did you know all of that is in the word bless? Isn't that good? Somebody, isn't that good? When it says that God blessed you, what does it mean? What is the Father's position toward you this morning? It's this. He's come from a high place down to a low one, down to whatever mess you're in, whatever you can't figure out, whatever you've done, whatever's you're broken or you're undone or you're unfinished. He's come down to your current place. And right now he's taking out his hand. He's lifting you by the head. He's looking into your eyes with eyes that know you and love you. And he's furnishing you in this place with delight with everything you're going to need for today. That's the very first thing God ever did on the planet. He blessed us. We turn the pages into the New Testament when Jesus comes into the story. And we find that the very first words of the very first and only sermon Jesus would ever preach. Jesus was so good he only had to preach one sermon. I got to keep coming every week and do it. But Jesus preached one and that was enough. You know what the first words of his first and only sermon were? I bless you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's he saying? Poor in spirit, I bless you. You feel you're bankrupt and you have no answers. I bless you. 
Blessed are the meek. I bless you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I bless you. As a side note, if we pay more attention to who Jesus says is blessed, it would change who and what we pursue on the planet. But that's another lesson for another day. The agenda and the priority of our God is blessing. But there's another figure in the story. We've got an enemy of our souls whose name is the accuser and his primary foundation when you read him in the story. You remember the serpent in the book of Genesis when he showed up? His first thing was not to bless, it was to blame. He showed up and he blamed God. He said, no, listen, God is lying to you about the thing that he said he's going to give you. If you'll take this fruit that I've given you, it'll give you everything you need. That serpent shows up again in the book of Job. Satan shows up in Job, and what is he doing this time once again? His very first words, he's blaming. And this time, he's not blaming God, he's blaming man to God. He comes to God and he says, listen, the only reason humanity would ever serve you, God, is because you bless them. All they want are your gifts. They don't want your presence. They don't want your face. And sure enough, the enemy shows up again in the life of Jesus in a desert. And what does he do? You guessed it. He shows up to blame. He says, well... Holy and begotten Son of God, it would seem that your father forgot where you are and left you in a desert to die. So how about you take these stones and tell them to become bread? So in that, I want to give you the big idea for this morning. It's this, that blessing is the language of heaven and blame is the strategy of hell. Blessing is the language of of heaven, and blame is the strategy of hell, and that matters, because right now every thought you allow to sit in your head, and every word you choose to speak is a brick that you are placing in one wall or the other. The advocate and the accuser, they coach for opposing teams, y'all. Listen, blessing is the language of heaven. Blame is the strategy of hell. And right now, every thought you're allowing to sit in your mind and every word you're choosing to speak is putting a brick in one wall or the other. You are presently either building a culture of blessing on earth or agreeing with a culture of blame. I want to talk this morning about how we build a culture of blessing even if we find ourselves in a culture of blame. And here's what I want to do. The very first thing, I want to take three indicators to tell you what kind of culture you find yourself in. And so we're going to take a quiz together and figure out what kind of culture is it. Maybe you're wondering, maybe you're like, you're just too pessimistic. Things are all right. Anybody think of that this morning? Probably not. But we're going to take the quiz anyway. Three indicators for what kind of culture we're in. The first is this. Blame culture is about tearing you can back up one slide there. That'd be awesome. Blame culture is about tearing others down. I go higher by keeping you lower. Blessing culture is about building others up. I go higher by going lower, believing that a rising tide, when I come down to serve you, a rising tide lifts all boats. This is all about how we see people. When you look at people that you encounter today, and I'm not just talking about the people that are my people. I'm talking about people. Do you see them as a brother or sister adored by God, highly valued, one of a kind, or do you see them as a means to help you reach a greater end or someone who's hindering you from reaching a greater end? I would say to the church of the living God that until and unless we see that our worth 
and our calling and our destiny is secure in our Father alone. We will find ourselves drawing near to people to increase our worth or resenting them because we feel like they threaten it. In short, we will use people instead of love them. So here's the quiz. If we're tearing down or we're building up, I'd ask this question. Do you talk more about who you're for or what you're against? Do you talk about what you adore in others or what annoys you? And I want to let you know if you spend any time with me, what I'm going to tell you right away, the number one message you're ever going to hear out of my heart is this. You ready? Your father adores you. God, your father adores you. And there's some people like, man, that's a strong word. I've had people in ministry almost knock over and they said, I've walked with the Lord, I've been in the church all these years, and I've never heard anybody say that. First of all, I believe the actual word love that's in the Bible is saying that it's a self-sacrificial, every part of you, moving you, which moved Jesus to the cross. But beyond that, we've got all these people that don't understand presently that the Father adores you. Do you find yourself focusing more on what you adore in others or what annoys you? Do you feel threatened by the success of others? Or do you feel more secure when you find out they struggle? They say that misery loves company. And I would challenge you before you move past this, because a lot of times, ah, I don't do that. But I would say we're a culture that is obsessed with comparison. And all the time in the comparison, there's, there's jealousy and there's striving that's going on. What is it we believe that's going on with other people that is defining or hindering our worth? The last question for this first one is this. Do you see others through the lens of what they can do for you? Second identifier. Blame culture is about magnifying what's wrong and minimizing what's right. Blessing culture chooses to address what's wrong but obsesses over what's right. See, this one is all about perspective. If the first was how you see people... This is how you see perspective of what's actually going on in the world around you. And I'll say this, in relationships or environments when blame is on the throne, you can never remain in good standing for long. You can never do well enough. You always have to prove your loyalty and your heart and your worth. The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let me just say this right now. If you find parents that you're critical toward your children... It is likely because you believe your father is critical toward you. Let me say that again. If you walk around at your workplace and you find that you are critical to other people, it is likely because you believe your father is critical to you. If I can stop just a minute there and just minister to our hearts for just a minute. Can I tell you this morning that God our father doesn't just love you, he actually likes you? Isn't that good? God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. He actually smiles when you walk into the room. Let me share with you the scripture. Psalm 139, it says this. It says, before you woke up this morning, God had already thought more individual thoughts about you than the individual number of grains of sand on every seashore that's ever existed. And he said that every last one of those thoughts were precious. Take me, Jesus. Just take me. <laughs> what could happen if we actually believed that? Yeah. 
What could happen if you believe? Tell your heart right now. You ready? Let's do this. If you're happy and you know it, tell your face. Right? What could happen? And I'm preaching to myself here. If we actually believed that before you could open your eyes this morning, before you could do anything right, wrong, or indifferent, your father had already logged more thoughts of you than you would ever possibly be able to count. And every last one is precious. I'm going to tell you, church, we don't need a new revelation from God. We just need to believe the revelation he's already given. He goes forward, he says, I adore you. You come into the pages of Romans, this is what he says. He says, when you were your very worst, think about the worst moment of your life. Think about the shame that if we could put it up on the screen right now, you'd be like, I'm going to run off into traffic. I don't want people to know that moment in my life. He said at that moment, that's when he was running to redemption for you. That's when he came to rescue you. So how much more now shall you be saved by him? He says right now, Ephesians 2.10, in Ephesians he says that he made you his poem, his masterpiece. In 1 John, he says that he lavishes his love over you. And again, in Ephesians, it says that the love of God is so wide and so long and so high and so deep that it surpasses this thing in our head. And you can study and figure out all the days of your life and you will never be able to quantify or find words for a love that surpasses knowledge. In Hebrews, it says that you were the joy that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and that right now, He delights in you. So I want us to receive this right now. I want you to put your hand on your heart. I want you to say this. Say, Father, I choose to believe. All right, we're going to say it again in faith. Say, Father, I choose to believe that you don't just love me. You actually like me. You know me in all my mess. And you adore me. And right now, you long to bless me. Would you let that just sink in right now, hand on your heart? God, your Father doesn't just love you, He likes you. He knows you completely, all of your faults, every place you're a hot mess, He knows you. And right now, He adores you. I call for shame and guilt and burdens to go by the powerful name of Jesus. I call for burdens to lift because, listen, without that, no words that we're going to share are going to matter from here. I call for burdens to lift from your heart right now. I call for orphaned spirits to leave now in the name of Jesus. I call for a baptism of the Father's love and delight. Right now, if that's you, I just want to say this. I know we're in the middle of the message. I know this is unconventional. I love you. I don't care. Let's keep our hands on our heart. Right now, I want to say this. If you're going, that's me. Man, I hear you. I want to know the Father loves me like that, but I struggle. What I'm going to ask, every other eye closed, I'm just going to ask, I was going to do this at the end, I'll do it now. Every other eye closed, if that's you, right now, I want you to just put one hand on your heart and one hand in the air. If you're saying right now, I know, I hear you. I know that the Father loves me. I got it here intellectually, but I need to know it in my heart. I'm asking right now, come on, if that's you. I'm asking right now in the name of Jesus for a baptism of the Father's love. I'm asking, Father, that you fall. Bypass the mind, bypass the logic, bypass the family history. I want to tell you, his love is greater than what your mom or dad did or failed to do in your story. 
His love is greater than your present performance. He loves you not based on what you do. He loves you based on his finished performance on the cross for you on your behalf. He loves you not according to your history, but by your destiny. Father, I pray right now that you baptize your sons and daughters in your love. You give a revelation of your power in Jesus' name. Amen. Every once in a while, we just got to go off script, right? Okay. So with that, let's just transition back into a little quiz here, if we can. Are we in blessing culture or blame culture? Here's the quiz that I would give us. Do you talk more about what's broken in your family, in your church, in your job, or in the world? Or do you talk more about what's beautiful there? In fact, if you would just consider for a minute how you feel about your family, how you feel about your spouse, your kids, how you feel about our church, how you feel about your job, how you feel about the world around you, you just ask the question, am I grateful or am I grumbling? Third indicator is this. Blame culture does the lazy work of critiquing others. Blessing culture chooses the crazy work of helping construct them. Blame culture does the lazy work of critiquing others. Blessing culture chooses the crazy work of helping construct them. I'll say it a different way. Blamers point a finger where blessers extend a hand. This is about how we view progress. We talked about how we see people. We talked about how we see perspective. Now, it's if the world is broken, where do we go from this place? Is my worldview one of hope or despair? Let me ask it a different way. When you get up in the morning, are you Tigger or are you Eeyore? I got to tell you, there are too many people who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they ain't walking around like a lamb. They're walking around like a donkey, like Eeyore today. They're walking around and holding pep rallies for the losing team when Jesus already conquered everything, right? So it's this, it's this picture and this question, what does progress look like? And further, I'd say this, what is your position in the situation? If there's brokenness going on around you, are you called into the room as an active constructor or a passive critic? My Bible says this. It says that our world is being restored. Can I get an amen on that one? That our world is being restored. Does anybody agree with that? That our world is presently being restored. That there are things right now that are broken that won't be broken anymore. The world is being restored. Amen? Amen. Okay, here's what that means. And the reason I asked for three amens, there's just all kinds of agreement in this place. Here's what it means if the world is being restored. It means that every day you and I are surrounded by things that are not yet whole. That are not yet functional. Do you know another word for something that's not yet functional? Something that's dysfunctional. If we're going to live in a world that is being restored, it means we're going to live in a world in places that are dysfunctional. And here's the difference. Blessers roll up their sleeves in faith when they see it because they know they're an active constructor. But blamers cross their arms and they vent in frustration. You'll know you're in the presence of a blamer because it's always someone else's fault that it's broken. There's always somebody to blame, and it's always somebody else's responsibility to fix it. You'll know you're with a blamer because what blamers tend to do is they stop seeing faces, and they label people by their stances. And they label people by the ones that are the problem people. And so anytime you hear these phrases, the problem is those liberals. The problem is those Muslims. The problem is the homosexual agenda. The problem is my boss. The problem is my parent. The problem is my neighbor. The problem is the coworker. You'll find with a blamer what they do is they spend all of their energies making these lists where everyone else needs to change. They've become experts at the specs in everybody else's eye, but they can't see the log in their own. 
I love this. This past week, I heard uh, Bishop Joseph Matera, and he said this word. He said, if the church isn't Christ-like, it really doesn't matter who the president is. <laughs> Somebody come on. But don't we hear that all the time? Well, America, America's going to hell in a handbasket. Why in the world we're going in a handbasket? I don't know. Okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even get that one. I think it would burn up if you're going to hell. Anyway, it's just a whole different thing that you could figure out later. But you hear it all the time. America's in trouble. Why? Because this candidate got in the office. Here's what I want to say. Is that candidate the hope of the world or is the church the light of the world? Yeah. I think the problem is this. I, I think that we have come to believe that our hope is about what box you check in a ballot. I would say maybe your hope has to do with a box, but it's what box you choose to define God and others in, not what box you check off on a ballot. All right? We need to get outside of our boxes and choose hope. Because this is what I find. It could be so easy in our culture, and maybe by now you're leaning in for me to, to, to tip my hat and tell you what kind of culture I believe that we live in today. But it could be easy to label and to blame and for the people of God to confuse that for righteousness. And I'll tell you, it's a kind of righteousness. It's called self-righteous. And it's dangerous because it's the favorite play of our enemy. The devil. It says in the Bible that the devil's name is the accuser. We've heard that before. Does anybody know what the accuser means in Greek? This is the word accuser in Greek. It's kategoreo. Kategoreo. Does that sound like anything you know? The devil is literally the categorizer, the labeler. It means that his whole agenda is to reduce someone's worth by defining them according to boxes and categories, deciding who's in and who's out. See, this is how he gets us to dehumanize and vilify others, to elevate ourselves by reducing others to a box or a stance that is beneath us. What? We go higher by pushing other people lower. And so then we feel justified to move from the brother's seat to the judge's seat. Let's say it this way. Blamers define people by labels and distance themselves according to different stances. Blessers see faces and join stories, especially those that are different from their own. So what kind of culture do we find ourselves in? A culture of blessing or a culture of blame? I would say largely around us we see today that we live in a culture of blame. Amen? Amen. So I want to ask, how is it then in a culture of blame that we can build a culture of blessing, build a culture of honor? I want to share three steps toward that right now. And then before we're done, you super practical people, I'm going to have something you can screenshot that gives you 10 tips for how you can walk it out. You people who love homework are going to love it. You people who don't love homework, don't blame me on the way home, or you missed the whole point of this morning's message. Just bless me. How do we build a culture of blessing? Number one is this. We've got to assign someone's capacity by their destiny, not their history. We've got to assign someone's capacity. What am I talking about? What they're capable of what we believe their ceiling is, where we believe they could go, what limits we put on them or refuse to put on them. We have to assign their capacity by their destiny, not their history. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, Paul starts off and he says this. He says, we regard no one according to the flesh. You know that phrase, according to the flesh, means whenever you see that in the Bible? According to the flesh would be the opposite of walking in righteousness, 
To walk in righteousness means to be who God created you to be. So when you see this phrase, when he says, we see somebody walking according to the flesh, it means they're walking by sinful behaviors that are fallen that don't align with who God called them to be. Okay? Somebody walking according to the flesh, they're walking in a sinful behavior that's missing the mark from who God called them to be. Got it? This is why I love this. Who are we allowed to see through that lens? No one. It says believers regard no one according to their sinful behaviors that aren't who they were created to be. You go, wait a second. What about those people whose politics just really anger me? Regard no one. Say, so what about that person that has a lifestyle that I think is just really different? Regard no one according to the flesh. What about that person on my Facebook page that's really annoying? Regard no one according to the flesh. It's about a new lens that came to us. That instead we're to see people by a new potential. You want to know what it is? It's this. That right now goodness and mercy is chasing them down. Right now Jesus is pursuing them. And whatever he touches is transformed into what it was created to be. Somebody get this right now. Anybody in the room get annoyed by people? Six people get annoyed by people in the room. One guy was like, I'm getting annoyed by you right now. <laughs> Anybody get annoyed by people? Yeah. So here's the deal. When we get annoyed by people, it's because we're seeing them according to their sinful behavior. They're doing something that crossed our line. They're doing something on the outside, and we're saying, that's not okay, and we're allowing that in that moment to define it. But Jesus shows up and says there's a new hope, and the hope isn't that they stop being an idiot. The hope is that you can elevate to regard no one according to the sinful behavior of what they've done, but you can get a new lens. What's the new lens? That right now goodness and mercy is chasing them down. Right now Jesus is pursuing them. And when he catches them, nothing that is touched by Jesus can stay the same. When he catches them, he's going to transform them. And when you see that, that moves you from the judgment seat back into the brother's seat. Because then you go, you know what? I tried to run and resist for a long time. I try to run and resist still. You know what I find? Jesus is a better runner than me. So you look at that person, you say, they really annoy me. Then you can just say it this way. You can be like, guess what? I don't think you're as good of a runner as me. He's going to catch you. And it changes our prayer. Because then no longer do we see them by their history. No longer we see them by what they did. We realign in that moment and say, Jesus, who did you create them to be? It's a new lens for how to see people. But let me get practical about this for a minute. If you're going to choose in your life real community with any group of people, real community, what I mean is we move past trying to impress each other, we move past the wearing a mask, we move past trying to be on our best behavior. If we get to the place that it's just me and just you, if it's just you and it's just me, I want to make you a promise. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to hate it, but somewhere I'm going to let you down. Somewhere I'm not going to see you the way God sees you. Somewhere I'm going to fail. And here's where the problem comes with that. In the church culture in America, I would say the last 200 years, I think this is why we've become content for so long with a Sunday morning service with an anointed speaker and a great band, or even more in these days to say, well, I'll just watch it online. I'll just check out Elevation and Stephen Furtick online. That's my church. And I'll have an a la carte commitment where I can get involved at my own pace. I think we've chosen that because we say that it's safe. 
Why do we resist real community? I would say that many people have tried it and they got burned. They got around other people and they felt unseen and they felt unsafe and it got messy because let's just be honest, people can be annoying, right? Church would be easy if it weren't for the people. Because Jesus is always beautiful. It's people who let us down. And I think we forget this sometimes when we come into church. Just because somebody said a prayer where they go to heaven doesn't mean they've learned any better how to love people on earth. Saying a prayer to go to heaven doesn't mean you've learned how to love people better on earth. In fact, this is what I found. Many people use God in ways that are judgmental and just plain mean. So we find Christians taking the wheel and saying, you know what, I'm going to take a safe distance back, and I'm going to choose to get revelation apart from community. I'm going to choose to not go there because it's safe, but I want to tell you in that moment you've become self-protecting. You're trying to be your own savior, and though it sounds good, it will keep us shallow, and it will never satisfy. Because the hope of the global church is not in her programming, it's in her people Choosing to prioritize diverse and uncomfortable and awe-inspiring proximity. We will have no revival without relationship. So how do we honor people who hurt us with their rough edges? For some of us, if you've been hurt really bad this morning, we have this problem in the church that a lot of times we say following Jesus just means you become super polite and you're like Mr. Rogers walking around all the time. For some of us, you've been really hurt by community, and you keep saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, you're blown off. It's not fine. Your father's not okay with it. That's what you need to know. I would never be okay with somebody coming and smacking my daughter and walking away. Your father is not okay with where you've been hurt, and you need restoration, and you need healing, and that's beautiful. We're a restoring church. But I'll tell you what we need to do is get restored so that we can get back in community because there will be no revival apart from relationship. Now, let let me say this to the rest of us. If we're going to walk in a place where we actually get real relationship, if we're actually going to walk in a culture of blessing, we've got to be in community. And I think the only way we're going to be able to walk in community is we have to change the unrealistic standards we hold people to. I got the joy of being a youth pastor for 20 years. And I've watched a significant shift take place in the last decade. Not just for the youth that are coming up, our whole culture, but I've watched it especially in the generation of, I would say, 15 to 25. I've watched a generation raise up. And listen, I was in the same room coming, preaching the same messages, loving the same way, but I watched a shift where our culture in a short period of time became disgruntled and angry, hurt at our parents and untrusting of authority figures. And some of it has led to needed discussion It's brought things out from under the rug that we've needed to talk about and fix for a long time. But i got to tell you what I see in our culture today of every age. There's lots of spiritual myopia. There's lots of nearsightedness going on. Because pop culture has become the new dominant educator. And we've developed this impossible savior standard on our friends and on celebrities and on leaders and on our family and on our church. In this impossible standard, it minimizes every act of love and it maximizes every shortcoming. And as a result, everyone remains wounded. Everyone remains a victim because nobody can do enough to change the narrative. And I got to tell you, if social media as we know it had a gospel, it would be that. It's a gospel and a narrative of blame and despair. How do we change that? 
First, I would say we need to receive our worth from our Father alone. We've got to stop looking to people to give us our worth. People will let you down because they can't be your Savior. They can't even save themselves. The second is this, though. We, starting as the church, not pointing a finger but extending a hand to the rest of the world, we need to grow in grace to see people according to who God created them to be. And before they change their behavior, we need to change the headline that we see on their life. Let me say that again so you get it. Before they change their behavior. I'm on edge this morning, y'all. I'm sorry. I just want to say, I, 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 can I just, quick time out, bloop. Because some of you are going to be like, the pastor passed out in the middle? I don't know what the heck was happening this morning. I'm a fairly level-headed guy. So there's two things I just need you to know about me so when we walk in community. If you ever see that I get on edge and it looks like, oh, my gosh, somebody check his blood pressure. Something's going on. It's because that I have an expectancy of what we can be. I'm not angry. I'm not frustrated. And I promise you, just so you're aware, I might be on an elevated platform here, but I don't believe I've arrived anywhere. The reason I preach messages passionately is because these are tested through the fire every day of my life. I see this when I look in the mirror. I know that it's true because I'm watching it here. The other thing I'll tell you, just so you know, is if ever I'm really inspired by something, you hear me, if you're happy and you know it, tell your face. I'm the worst at that because when I get really inspired, I get like this. So I've had times where, where pastors have led initiatives at our stuff, and they've led with a team, and it's been so beautiful, and I'm so moved, and they come afterwards and they're like, I'm so sorry, what did I do? <laughs> and then I break and I'm like, you called down heaven. So for some of you, I promise you, I'm doing good. You don't need to come to me later because sometimes people come to me later. You just love me and I, I'm so grateful. But some will come later and be like, I just want you to know, Pastor, I'm with you. Listen, these lights, I can't see anything. I can't see you. If, you're, if you all left right now, I wouldn't know, okay? I'm just telling you things I'm sensing from the spirit. And there will be moments that I sense from the spirit, oh, we didn't move there. We didn't believe that. We need to believe that. And so then I'm just going to press in a little deeper. All right, that's been our public service announcement. We will now return to our message. I apologize in advance for the four minutes that cost to your lunchtime. What do we have to do when we find annoying people, people who hurt us? We've got to choose to grow in grace and say this, I'm going to change the headline I put on your life before you change your behavior. I'm going to stop expecting you to change. Instead, I'm going to change. And this is the way this is going to look in my life. I'm going to allow the flawless God alone to define me. And I'm going to walk courageously with flawed people. And when I do, this is what I'm going to find. It's going to be beautiful. We're going to help each other confirm and strengthen and mature and encourage and clarify all God's doing. And listen, wherever as we walk together, you help me, I'm going to overflow with gratitude. Wherever you fail to see me or celebrate me, wherever you give me advice or support that's incomplete, or wherever you blow it, I will choose to forgive you. I will trust God, not you, to provide for me and to fix it. And then courageously, I will come to you as a peacemaker. But listen, no matter what you choose, I will not allow the way I see you to change. Because I've been called by heaven to see you not according to your behavior, but according to your destiny. See, when we would walk there, it would be beautiful because then we could change in position and say, this is what I'm going to do. Even if you walk away and you let me down, instead of me being angry, oh, they did this, oh, they did this, oh, they did this, I'm going to say, out of the overflow of the heart, hurting people hurt people. And so what I'm going to do instead is say this, right now you're hurting, right now you're running. Guess what I know? Goodness and mercy are pursuing you, and you're not as good of a runner as Jesus. He's going to catch you. So right now, instead of coming in accusation, 
I'm going to come right now in intercession, and I'm going to say, Jesus, catch him. I'm not going to judge him. I'm just going to say the same grace that's catching me every day. You go, and you catch them. That's how we begin to change in the way we see people. The second one is this, if we're going to build a culture of blessing. You've got to embrace your lane and give grace as others find theirs. 1 Peter 4.10, it says this, As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. This is where we move into a new perspective, into a new worldview. And the worldview says this, that we believe. Somebody say, we believe. We believe the image of God is in every person. We believe that there's a reflection or a facet of the wisdom and love and power and grace of God. And the more any person experiences God, the brighter they shine. But God has planted goodness in all he made. And so my question is this. What could happen for us as the followers of Christ if we would define people by the goodness of their creator and not by the badness of their behavior? Come on, somebody. What could happen for us as people if we would define others when we see them outside by the goodness of their creator, not by the badness of their behavior? How do we do that? Here it is. We've got to seek out the image of God in you and speak out the image of God in them. It's two important points there. First, you seek out the image of God in you. Did you know that there are certain places right now that you manifest the love and power and glory of God Greater than I do, greater than Pastor Lynn does, greater than Pastor Aaron does, greater than Billy Graham did, greater than Todd White does. Does somebody know that right now? Somebody get the blood pressure machine. This is the big one. It's coming. Did you know right now? This is, too, this is just too important to move on. Did you know right now that there is a place where the love and the mercy and the power of God flows through you greater than all of your spiritual heroes. Right now, that's actually true. Say, I'm a hot mess. Newsflash, so are they. And right now, it's, it's burning in you, and it is so urgent that we discover it. It's so urgent that we find what it is, because listen, Christ in you is the hope of glory, which means if there's ever going to be any hope or any glory on earth, it's going to come through Christ in you. It's just too important to move past. Right now there's a glory in you and if you want to know there's a broken world, what's the number one thing you need to do? Get quiet with your father and seek the glory that's in you because Christ in you is the hope of glory that changes things. But then there's a second. That we speak out the glory in them. Right now what's true even for that person that's really hurt you is there are places that every person you will ever meet reflects God in a deep and mature way. Now, some people who reflect God, they make you uncomfortable because they're still out of balance. They're still unsafe. Let me just say this. Some people make you uncomfortable because they threaten the boundary or box that you've held God and others in, and it needs to blow up. And they make you uncomfortable because they threaten what you've known and the security of your old theologies that just need to die. But either way, when people make us uncomfortable, the tendency can be for us to silo or to silence, for us to avoid those people or for us to feel the need to correct them. But my question is, what could happen if the spirit of celebration in the church became much louder than any spirit of criticism? Any parents in the room? Parents in the room? Six parents in the room. I'm, I'm trying so hard for crowd participation today. All right, listen. 
I already told you guys I can't see you. I really don't know if anybody's hands are up. I'm just, I'm just being ornery. I'm sorry. It's not blame. It's blessing. Parents, this is what we know. This is what we know. Every kid that's learned how to walk, it is a disaster when they start, isn't it? Every kid learning how to walk is a bull in a china shop. That's why all these child-proofing companies have made billions of dollars. Because if a kid starts walking, it's going to be disastrous for everything in their radius and sphere. And here's my question. Why have we forgotten that spiritually? Why have we forgotten spiritually that when people learn how to walk, it's going to be disastrous? See, the enemy loves to kill a move of God in its infancy. And sadly, one of the number one strategies he uses is Christians who shoot down the dreamers before they can take their first step. We tell them that they're too timid or too brash or their theology is incomplete or this thing that they're standing for will never work. They're too messy. To that, I want to say I'm so grateful for a church that has given me the grace. It's 20 years now at this church. And I'm so grateful for a church that gives me the grace to grow up into wholeness and fullness. Aren't you? Isn't it great? And I would say the hope is we need to take that same thing to our family, to our workplace, to the world. All right, final step. And then we're going to land this plane. How do we build a culture of blessing? We've got to trade critiquing monologues about people for constructive dialogues with them. This is about progress. How do we grow with difficult people and what is our role? Ephesians 4.29, it says this. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. In Greek, the word unwholesome, right? If we shouldn't let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth, it's probably helpful to know what unwholesome means. The word unwholesome in Greek means rotten or no longer useful. Say this to us, that any word that is spoken that is not presently building someone up is rotten and it's no longer useful in the kingdom of God. Any word that you and I would speak, any word that would come out of your mouth that is not presently helping to build another person up so they can look like more who God created them to be according to God, it's a word that is rotten and that is no longer useful in the kingdom of God. What does this include? It includes rants about politics and celebrities. It includes gossip. Anybody remember the National Enquirer? When you see the National Enquirer at, at the grocery store stand, like it had these insane attacking rumors, but your grandma bought it and she thought it was real. Remember that? And she looked crazy. Social media and most news shows are today's National Enquirer. And I want to say this, to the extent you digest them, you look crazy, grandma. Social media and news shows that we're living 24-7 news is a terrible idea because there ain't 24-7 news. It's about 20 minutes of news and 23 hours and 40 minutes of commentary about that news of all of our opinions of everything we think, where we get polarizing views to attack one another. The more you digest that stuff, you look crazy, Grandma. All right? I would also say this unwholesome talk would include us having to have an opinion about everything under the sun. There's a newsflash. You don't need to be an expert on everything. There's a better newsflash I need to remind myself sometimes. If you're not an expert, just don't say anything. The Bible says be quick to listen and slow to speak. So what does that mean for us? It means that we must do whatever it takes to keep believing the best in other people. We must only speak in arenas and relationships where the Holy Spirit is inviting us in and giving us language to build. That we're to wait for wisdom, that we're to wait for revelation and say nothing until what we can say will be 
constructive otherwise than we're to be quiet and to devote ourselves to prayer. I believe we can build a culture of blessing. One last thing I wanted to do before I pray is I wanted to give you 10 tips just to help equip this today. So you can take a screenshot of this. You can, you can um, email me at chuck at myoverflowchurch.com. But these are 10 ways that we can walk through, and I'm just going to hit them real quick, and then we're going to pray so that we can be out of here by 4 o'clock today, y'all. <laughs> 10 tips for building a culture of blessing. Number one, to spend time hearing the Father's blessing over you. The delighted kids delight in others. Corrected kids correct others. That's why we have a primary value at our church of walking as a friend of God. Value number two, that we would walk in a community of blessing. As a youth pastor, one of the things I said often is, I will know who you are becoming if you just show me your five closest friends. Your worldview is being formed and shaped by those you walk in community with. In the post-pandemic, that's a problem because we're surrounded by thousands of people but often isolated from true focused community. Number three, make friends with diverse people and seek to understand, not to stand over them. What do I mean? I mean, we've got to learn to let different views of the world grow and stretch and mature us. We've got to get around people that see God and others differently, not to prove who's more right. Psalm 19 says that creation shouts the glory of God. That includes every person you'll ever meet. And if you and I would listen more and walk with people seeking to understand, we would find that God is teaching us with the faith like a child at every turn. Number four, we've got to speak less of our opinion and listen more to God's. Whenever you find yourself in a place that you're like, man, I'm frustrated, here's your number one question. What do you say, Lord? Number five, if you didn't do that one well, and I newsflash, I didn't do that one well already this week, learn to self-correct and redirect judgment. Whenever you find yourself saying something judgmental, use it as an opportunity right there with your spouse, with your friend, with your kid, to stop and say, you know what? What I'm saying right now is a brick I'm putting in a wall that is not my father. I want to go ahead and recant that last statement. I, I, I pretended like I knew something that I don't know, and instead I really don't have something constructive to say, so let's just stop and let's just pray. It'll be such a blessing and a gift to your kids. Number six, be a thermostat. Uh, uh, be a thermostat, not a thermometer. A thermometer tells the temperature. It's descriptive. Thermometer people are ones who show up and go, it's hot, it's stuffy, it's raining, it's wet. <laughs> Got an alarm system at home that is linked to the weather service. And this past week at 3.30 a.m., noises went off inside our house like a bomb shelter. So I go running across the house like, oh, my gosh, somebody's breaking in. It's terrible. This red light's flashing. Woo, woo, woo. And I get in there, and it says, there's wind in Hudson. We just wanted to make you aware. <laughs> That's not useful. That word is rotten and unproductive. It is easy to tell the weather. It's easy to complain, to be a backseat driver, and to air your opinions. Don't be a thermometer. Be a thermostat. A thermostat changes the temperature in the room. I love this from Pastor Brenda that she said last week. She said, say less of the obvious thing and more of the encouraging thing. Number seven, monitor your consumption of media so you don't look crazy grandma. That's both in minutes and in the message. And I would ask this question with any media that you're taking in. What view of God and myself and others am I getting from this? And what thoughts am I allowing to sit? Because the thoughts you allow to sit will become the words that you choose to speak, and they will become the initiatives you live for. Number eight, become fluent in blessing. I'll give you two power of three things you can do this week. Number one, when you're annoyed with somebody, if you're annoyed with them right now, don't nudge them, don't point at them. But if you're annoyed with somebody, 
I encourage you to stop before God and before you even list your complaint to God, list three blessings that you see coming from their life before you list any kind of complaint. The second one would be a positive one that you could just go about your life. I would encourage you to start your day this way. Look for three people to text a day just to be able to say, God, I'm just going to bless them. I don't need anything from them. I don't need to ask a question. I'm just to say, I see glory in you. I promise you we're not going to die from too much encouragement. Number nine, move from the critic sitting in the judge's seat to a co-human walking on the same road. What I mean is this. When you see somebody doing something that really annoys you, remember out of the overflow of a broken heart, they're speaking. Hurting people hurt people. When you see them hurting others, think, what is the hurt coming out of their heart? And intercede instead of pointing a finger to judge. The final one is this. Find where to best serve your family, your friends, your church, your workplace, and run. Active troops don't have time to wallow in annoyance. God has called us to walk in the blessing that is the language of heaven in the midst of a world where blaming is the strategy of hell. Every thought we allow to sit, every word that we speak is a brick in one wall or the other. And so I just want to close asking, where is it that God's calling you today to build a culture of blessing? Would you stand with me? And if you would with me, we're just going to take a moment and activate before we go home today. I'm going to ask if you'd close your eyes and just place your hand on your heart. Would you allow the Holy Spirit right now just to remind you of the words that you've spoken over this past week? Who is it you've been critical about this last week? Maybe it's thoughts you've thought. Maybe it's words you've said. Who in your family do you feel you've been critical toward? Who in the church? Who in your workplace? Who in the world around you? Maybe it's a, a person or maybe it's a group of people that you say, man, these people, I'm just really struggling with them. Wherever that is, the invitation today, God is inviting us to repent. It literally just means to change our perspective and to turn around. And so what I'm going to ask with every eye closed, with your hand on your heart, right now if you're saying, you know what, I struggle with a critical spirit and I want to be known for a constructive one. What I'm going to ask with one hand on your heart is that with the other hand you just lift it in the air. If you say right now, I struggle with a, with a critical spirit. I come around a lot of times and I could just get so negative all the time and I want God to change my perspective. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I release grace to you from your Father that, first of all, you would be able to forgive yourself. You are the greatest critic to you. And I say it in love. It's time to stop it. I speak for your Father. He delights in you. He is not feeling about you what those worst lies you say in the mirror that is not the voice of your father. That's the voice of an accuser. In the name of Jesus, I cast shame off of you. That you would have the grace to forgive yourself. I speak over you right now a lens of gratitude. What I'm asking is that you would just see things differently. As Saul, going down the road, had scales fall from his eyes. I'm asking now in Jesus' name that where you've just come, I just believe he's too good. God's too good and he does all the work. You go, it can't be that easy. I can't just say I want a critical spirit to go and lift my hand and the Father touch me without anybody else putting his hand on me. Of course it can be. God's too good. I release upon you right now a lens of gratitude that when you walk through this week, you're going to see people and situations in a different way, that you're going to have this self-correcting that comes over your spirit when you see something wrong. 
In the name of Jesus, right now, we cast out a critical spirit. Over every son, over every daughter, and over the church of the living God, we speak to our community around us, to Riverview, to Brandon, to Sefner, to Valrico. We say Overflow Church is going to walk in a way that will be a culture of a language of blessing. It's safe. Come on in. We have no desire to point a finger, only to extend a hand. And I pray just as is what happened in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came and he brought a new language, I pray right now, in Jesus' name, if you struggle with a critical spirit, that even now, right now, by faith, that God would change your language from criticism to celebration. There's a second group I just want to minister to for just a minute. If you're one right now, again, hand on your heart that you feel jaded because there have been critical people in your life that have stood in the way of your dreams. They've hurt you. They've angered you. And most days you find it's hard to get your head above water because you just keep thinking about what these people have done to you. You weren't seen. You weren't celebrated. You weren't safe. But right now you want to forgive them and let them go. I'm going to ask in the same way, one hand on your heart, that you would just lift your hand right now. And I'm just going to ask the Lord to move. Father, I ask for the grace right now to forgive. I ask for the grace right now. Forgiveness is not a feeling. So all you're going to do right now with that person is say, Lord, they did this and you saw it, but I refuse to be a pawn on their chessboard anymore. You are my provider. You are my savior. You saw what was stolen and I'm trusting you to take care of it. I release them. I let them go. And what I ask, Father, instead of asking you to curse them, I ask you to catch them. Let your mercy and grace that is catching me and touching me and transforming me, let it catch them now in Jesus' name. Finally, just this last word I'm going to give us as we close in prayer. For somebody, it's time for you to step into community. You've been isolated. You've been walking alone. You've been self-preserving because people are messy. And I get it. I really do. But it will always keep us shallow and it will never satisfy. So right now, hand on your heart. If you're saying, I need community, I just want to pray a blessing over you. Would you lift a hand in the air? I'm living isolated and I need not to anymore. I ask right now that God would give you the grace of a boldness a boldness to step out and a wisdom to know who and where he's calling you to connect. Father, I ask that we would be a church that would be known in the midst of a culture of blame as people of tremendous blessing. We call for heaviness to leave and for your delight to fill us. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Thank you for